Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I am joined by Eric Fawcett, GetterCountry.com, and Jake Winterman is our guest tonight. Jake, what's going on, dude? It's good to be here. You know, big uh, big Florida Basketball Hour fan. So, you know, constant listener. So happy to be a, a part of the show, join the conversation, and uh, get to break down what was quite the game on uh, Wednesday night. Yeah, it's good to have you here, yeah, Jake. And I know you him. are... Uh, um, I know you are an actual listener because I know I slipped in the thing about the story about me learning who your dad was the other day. And I didn't tell you about it just to see if you would, you know, in fact, bring it up and you did. So I do know you are a true listener and uh, you know, even if you weren't, it'd be good to have you on. Listen, I'm here from the intro to when Eric Fawcett lets us all know to just keep attacking closeout. So I am start to finish big Florida <laughs> basketball hour guy. Love it. Appreciate it. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, we're less glad about the outcome of, of the Florida LSU game uh, kind of felt like it's, I guess it's like kind of, it's a little bit selfish as a fan to kind of say you let one get away against team that's ranked number 12, but mm-hmm. Florida let one get away against the team that's ranked number 12. I mean, they fouled maybe the front runner for SEC player of the year out with 14 minutes to go. They fouled out Efton Reed. Um, they got to the free throw line a ton. Like Florida should have won this game. Yeah, you know, this was a game that really felt there for the taking. And after suffering what, you know, uh, you want to say two tough losses to Alabama and Auburn against two teams that are objectively top 25 in the country. Auburn, as we've seen what they've been able to do this year between Jabari Smith, Walker Kessler, that's a team that really might end up being a Final Four team, really one of the few teams in the country that we see as true contenders at this point in the season. But, you know, you go into this third game of an absolutely torrid stretch against LSU at home. It doesn't start off the way that you'd want it to. LSU hit, I think, five of their first six shots and then started getting to that range that we've seen in a lot of games where Florida's trailed this year where, you know, the team Florida's facing goes up double digits around 10, 11, 12, gets cut back down to the three, four, five, six mark and sort of stays around that range. Game got to halftime, Gators down eight. And in the second half, as you mentioned, with uh, Eason and Reed, both out, you know, pretty early into the second half of that game. It feels like a game you can win, and it feels like a game with Colin Castleton in the interior and, you know, guys like Anthony DeRuji, C.J. Felder, who probably should have played more in the second half, more than three minutes, but we'll probably get to that later in the show. It felt like it was one there for the taking, and it somewhat seemed to come down to mental mistakes, whether you see it at the free throw line, whether you saw it in gaps in defensive coverage, where, you know, the start of the second half, it seemed like they did such a good job of sort of preventing LSU from getting to the middle of the floor where they were finding a lot of success in the first half and sort of those lapses late in the game and the constant mistakes where Florida could get within two, but they couldn't tie it and take the lead. And eventually time just ran out on them in a game where, you know, if they just hit even five, six more free throws, they put themselves in a position where they're tied or winning we could have seen it go a lot of different ways but obviously you lose to LSU you lose the third game of a stretch against all three top 25 teams and potentially even better you know coming down the stretch you know this might have gone a little bit easier if Florida played their opener against Ole Miss or able to get a win lose these three games at least you can say you know what Florida chalked up a win on the board they lost three tough games and then they go into a stretch coming up which we'll uh, talk more about with four winnable games but you know the game was there for the taking down the stretch and it was just the mental lapses that we've seen at the end of a lot of Florida games this year that just haven't given them the ability to close out despite getting good looks like we saw McKissick got a good look from three whether he should have been the one taking that shot we can discuss as well but it, it was a chance for Florida 
to get a quality win, a quadrant one win, which would have stood up for the rest of the season, sort of paired up there with Ohio State. Unfortunately, they let it slip away, and you've got a, you know, you've got a little bit until you get a, another one of those marquee games. You've got the game at Tennessee a little bit later in uh, January, but it would have been a good win to chalk up and sort of something that Florida fans could have held their hat on, you know, going one and two over a stretch of really uh, three really tough games. Unfortunately, Gators are now 0 3, first time since the 1980s in SEC play, and it's left, uh, as you can probably see on Twitter, a bad taste in uh, a couple of fans' mouths or the majority of the fan base mouths. Yeah, I mean that stat about 0 and 3 for the first time since you know 1981 or whatever was that like that was crazy to me. Like obviously 0 and 3 is not great and it's not the standard we've come to expect at Florida, but you would have thought just you know one of these years you start against you know Kentucky and uh, you know really good Tennessee team and a really good you know Missouri team back in the day or whatever kind of before Florida really came into uh, what they were under Billy Donovan. Like you would have thought that there was just like a stretch like that. So to find out that this is the first time 0 and 3 since then is just just crazy. And, uh, you know, there's plenty to discuss because there was kind of, you know, plenty that went wrong. And then also kind of like you mentioned, Neil, it was, you kind of said like, Hey, it was, you kind of let one slip against the, uh, you know, with the 12th ranked team in the country. And that might sound weird, but at the same time, it's like, I, I was, you know, playing around with Bart Torvik's tool where you can take players out of a lineup and see what would the team rank without these players. And, you know, you take Pinson out of the lineup, you take, you know, seven minutes of Eason and then you take, you know, read out of it. It's like, you know, or the, they're the 12th, 12th best team. I mean, you even take Pinson out and, and it was starting to look like they're not really a 25 top 25 team. Um, though, man, uh, Gaines was a very, very impressive player, uh, much better than I expected. Um, but even then, it's like, you know, when are you going to be able to, to play the 12th ranked team with most of crunch time being played without three of their starters? Like, man, it was uh, it was certainly there for them and just uh, kind of yeah, a, a number of execution errors. And you miss out on marquee win that they could really use for their resume. Yeah, 100 percent. And sort yeah, of let's talk a little. Mm-hmm. And just just a quick point about the res a quick point about the resume there. Even with Reed out and Eason out and Pinson out before the game, you know, when the selection committee is looking at that win later in the season, of course, you know, there is context factored into it, but the win is going to stand up either way. They're not going to downgrade it to a quadrant two win because you know these two players fouled out in the second half and coming into the game, Pinson wasn't available. So a win that would have stood up regardless of uh, context and circumstance. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, just really did feel like a missed opportunity. And I think part of the reason that Florida continues to miss these opportunities. Now, look, you have to take your hat off to LSU, uh, even without Terry Eason, who's been, I think he's either first or second in the country in box plus minus defensive rating. Um, you know, but even without him and Efton Reed, two tenacious defenders, they really did cause Florida some problems in, in uh, just being very active and getting in passing lanes, getting hands on balls, turning the Gators over. Uh, But, you know, not as simple as just missing shots. Florida still seems to have just schematic issues, breaking good defenses down. Uh, Fair to say, Eric. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I just wrote about it today, just a couple hours before, you know, we're recording this on, on Thursday night, but there's still a lot of people I feel that are kind of saying, like all oh, these guys just need to hit shots and like to an extent, like, yeah, there's, there's definitely some looks that you would think the Gators need to make and some timely ones, especially, I think we go back to uh, when the Gators almost made a comeback against Auburn and there's like, you know, a corner three that's, that's airballed and just takes all the air out of the balloon. But 
you know, kind of look at the numbers. It's like the, the, the fact of the matter is like, this is a team that when they're getting decent looks, they're, they're shooting well and shooting at the same rate that the Gators did last year, where they were a well above average three point shooting team. Uh, the problem, at least in my eyes and my interpretation of the numbers would be that the Gators are not generating enough open shots. Uh, it's well below the national average. And uh, it's also, you kind of look, it's not like, oh, when they get open shots, they're shooting poorly. Or um, when they're shooting contested shots, they're way below the national average. It's just like, they're just not getting a lot of good quality looks. And because they're getting a lot of contested ones, it's uh, what you expect based off the national average and what Florida's done the last couple of years, what, what they'd be shooting. So I, I, I do think you're seeing that at the end of these games. It's just kind of those situations where you're not really sure who's going to be able to create a shot. And you're, you're kind of, seeing all across modern basketball it's no matter if you know your center your traditional back to the basket guy uh is your best offensive weapon that's kind of tough to to go to um that's tough to go to in the clutch and and also Tyree Appleby is the guy that probably is the best at creating his own shot and he's kind of in uh in the in the bad graces of the coaching staff after turning the ball over a bunch or he's not on the floor and then you kind of just say like where the Gators going to get a shot. So, you know, Jake, you mentioned earlier that McKissick had some, uh, had some pretty big um, shots in this one and, and, and they fell out. I, I'm interested what you kind of think about his game recently and what you kind of thought about uh, the trust being put in him um, versus Appleby who turns the ball over more. You know, Eric, um, when you sort of look at this game and, and the season as a whole, I think the number one biggest problem that this team has is there's really no secondary ball handler on this team outside of Tyree Appleby. You know, when he's in the game, you can trust him to be your point guard. You can trust him to facilitate the offense. He's one of the few guys on this team who can sort of create his own space and create his own shot off the dribble. And as you mentioned, when he falls out of good grace with the coaching staff in a certain game where he's turning the ball over, Florida tends to go to Myron Jones and Brandon McKissick in their backcourt. And I know you mentioned McKissick, so we'll talk about him first before we, uh, you know, venture on to Myron Jones. But what you've seen out of Brandon McKissick is he is not a reliable ball handling option for this team. And he struggled a bit when he's been playing off the ball as well. You know, I, we were talking during the game last night and something you constantly notice with Brandon McKissick when he's handling the ball is he is telegraphing his passes. He is picking up his dribble a bit too early and it sort of just slows down the offense as a whole. There's a little bit of, you know, dribbling the ball, uh, dribbling the air out of the ball and show and showing just with his eyes where he's going on the court the defense and especially a good defense like LSU can read where the play is going and you just saw so many deflected passes whether they're going out of bounds whether they're leading into transition opportunities that were simply not working with the ball in Brandon McKissick's hands as the primary ball handler while Appleby is off the court then you go to the issues of Brandon McKissick sort of playing off the ball right now where he's shooting well below his uh, career three-point average. He got plenty of open looks in this game that he could have knocked down, some of which came when Tyree Appleby was in the game where Tyree Appleby would drive to the hoop. And because the defense has to respect his ability to get to the rim and his ability to create his own shot or his own mid-range shot or his own pull-up uh, three-point shot, the defense would collapse. McKissick would get a good look from beyond the arc, and he just wasn't able to knock it down. I think the final tally ended up being McKissick going one for seven from beyond the arc, and it was just an offensive performance that you really couldn't have that night for McKissick, especially 
when Florida is not willing to play Appleby as much in the second half because of his turnover issues or for whatever reason it was with the coaching staff that decided not to. But, you know, you go into the Ken Palm box score and you look at the offensive ratings and this blew me away that Brandon McKissick comes away from that game with a 58 offensive rating, which is it's it's pretty hard to get that low for playing that many minutes in a game as that big of an offensive option. And just, you know, McKissick, some of his strengths come when he's able to get to the basket and he can, you know, put it in the, he can put it in the bucket. He can get to the free throw line if he's able to knock down those free throws, which we saw yesterday he wasn't able to, but you know, at the moment, whether it's offensively, he's not capable currently as a ball handler, especially being the second ball handler behind uh, Tyree Appleby. When he's playing off the ball, he's really struggling to hit shots. And defensively, on the other side of the court, when you see him, and you know he comes in as a, a former conference defensive player of the year coming out of UMKC, but then you constantly see his man on the perimeter blowing past him on offense, which leaves him trailing the ball handler. It causes the interior of the Florida defense to collapse on whoever went past him. And it's leading to good three-point shots from beyond the arc for other teams who, when you play a team like an Alabama or an Auburn, are able to knock those shots down a little more proficiently than an LSU team, but still getting those good looks from beyond the arc. So, you know, Brandon McKissick came in and it was a guy a lot of people that were excited about. And, you know, I was excited and I still believe there's potential there because of how hard he plays and how much effort he puts into the game. But from a skill, from a skill point of view and from just sort of a, like a basketball vision point of view as a point guard, it's it's simply not working right now. And then that forces Myron Jones to become the secondary ball handler behind Appleby. And that's, you know, it's just not really what Myron Jones does. He's much better when you're running actions and sets for him off the ball for, you know, corner three pointers for different looks for him. So a lot of Florida's problems as a whole boil down to the fact that when Tyree Appleby is either off his game or physically not in the game because he's in the doghouse with the coaching staff, there's just not really a lot of creativity from Florida's backcourt and creating shots for themselves and creating shots for their players on the floor. Yeah, it was pretty brutal to see Appleby's, you know, minus 17 in the box score. Um, you know, so to some extent, you can understand maybe a little why they didn't mm-hmm. have him in the game. But but all these, I think to your point, Jake, you know, every every game, there's a flow to every game. And there are situations that come up in every game. And yesterday, once you had Efton Reed out, once you had Eason out, some of these people that can mm-hmm. give Tyree Appleby problems, it didn't make a ton of sense to me when Florida clearly just needed a couple buckets to get over the hump the way they were defending in the second half. Um, I'm not really sure why he wasn't reinserted into the game. And to your point on Brandon McKissick defensively, I mean, Florida gave up 42 points in the paint yesterday to LSU, which Colin Castleton after the game said, I didn't even realize it was that many. And I think part of that is because Castleton's in there playing defense, but when defenses collapse, it's not just, um, you know, that that creates open looks outside. I mean, how many times did Brandon Murray attack where the help went and get an easy putback bucket right at the rim, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that these are the kinds of things that happen just because space opens up on the floor uh, to help when you can't contain straight line drives. And it was just mystifying to me that, that that was something that keeps happening to McKissick last night, kept happening last night, has happened all season. I mean, Myron Jones uh, is not a plus defender by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he's shown that he's a capable defensive player at the power six level. Um, I think that's probably why, for example, he's a guy who had a dead even plus minus kind of transitioning to him a little bit, despite going two of nine. But 
Florida's not going to win many games when they shoot three of 16 from deep with the two guards who are on the floor playing primary minutes. And a lot of those looks were really good looks. Um, you know, now I know Eric did write an article today about how it's not as simple as make shots and it's not, but certainly once LSU started collapsing everything on Castleton, there were some open three pointers and, and those two guys in particular weren't making them. And Florida wasn't putting Tyree Appleby back in the game to create pressure and more strain on an LSU defense that at that point was a little bit undermanned. Oh yeah. I, I think too, uh, uh, what, one thing I pointed out with, uh, with the article too, is just like how there hasn't been as many of those three point shots out of post-ups that you might have expected, just given the amount of double teams that, Colin Castleton is face. And that's something that I thought they did a lot better at um, this time around. I thought they played out of double teams actually a lot better. Like that's one thing that I actually really enjoyed about what the Gators did offensively against LSU. Um, kind of handling those doubles a lot better than what we've seen in the past that we're all just like seeing poor Castleton dying out there because he's getting double teamed and no one's moving. And there's not kind of a clear path for what the Gators are. We're trying to look to like do out of those double teams. And then you saw against LSU, they started sending an opposite wing to that nail area and it kind of opened up a short pass out of the double team and then a quick high low. And, and I thought that that was a, an improvement from, from the Gators from a kind of offensive standpoint. Um, but again, I, I think going back to uh, some of those shots that missed again, I, I think looking at the numbers and, and then going back and, and looking at a game like LSU, it's just funny how, how much those misses do resonate when they're open. Like I pointed out the Daruji corner three, where the Gators are almost back in the game against Auburn that airballed. And then it was just like, well, you know, there's a microcosm of the season, but it actually wasn't a microcosm because you look and they're actually not getting a ton of open uh, shots and, and missing them. But it's like when you miss a whole bunch of contested ones and suddenly you get that wide open one and, and, uh, and you miss it, it's like, man, those, those really ring out. So it, it just it continues to be kind of a, a theme of, of this, this team where, you know, we're talking without Applebee. It's like, where does the shot creation come from? And um, there's, there's kind of right now it's like, well, do you think they can get enough threes out of post-ups? I mean, we'll, we'll see, but you know, one guy I think was uh, you know, we were happy to see a little bit more of, and we saw him in the starting lineup and, you know, I'm going to say I'll lead off by saying um, I thought he played a little bit less than, than I expected, especially seeing the starting lineup. But, um, you know, Kwesi Reeves comes in, hits one of his two threes. It was a big make at the time. But, uh, Jake, I'm curious what you what you thought about the Gators inserting him into the starting lineup and uh, where you see, you know, Reeves' role uh, moving forward here in SEC play. For sure. And I know there were, um, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories with obviously what we saw with Flanger Fleming and the Georgia national title game where people saying, oh, you know, was restarting because of Flanders Fleming, you know, he wants to drive down University Ave saying go dogs. But, you know, we're, we're going to skip past that since we're, we're we're a based in facts podcast. But, you know, Kowasi Reeves coming into the game, this is a guy that, you know, at six, seven and pretty lengthy has that NBA ready body that you're going to want to see in games against LSU athletes who are also in that same frame and that same position and that same athletic skill and this is a guy who we saw in high school was a fantastic three-point shooter a guy that can create his own shot off the dribble which is something that 
is so needed on this Florida team because outside of basically uh, Tyree Appleby, outside of Flanders Fleming making some good moves to the hoop and Colin Castleton getting his own space from making uh, moves in the low post, Kwasi Reeves is somebody who you could really use in that situation to open up the offense as a whole because if you let him get more minutes, and this is something that we talked about off air and the fact that Kwasi Reeves should have gotten a lot more minutes, and I've heard you guys mention on your uh, in previous podcast as well, should have gotten a lot more minutes in non-conference play where he's going against players at the level of, you know, of Elon, of UNF, of uh, even USF in that game, the Orange Bowl Classic, and in games where he can really get comfortable at the college level. He can make some mistakes, and, you know, he, he can also – make some positives out there and knock down some open shots, play some good defense against uh, the other team's best offensive player and get into the zone in those one-on-one matchups. And that's just a lot of experience that he didn't end up getting. I think the number you guys threw out, it was, it was like 81 or 90 minutes total that he um, ended up playing in non-conference play as a whole. And that's just for a guy who was a fringe five-star five-star, according to, I think rivals graded him as a five-star and a guy who, you know, is sort of in that, not the Trey Mann class in terms of like the ultimate skill level that Trey Mann had, but in the level of this guy could really go to the NBA sooner rather than later with, you know, being a six, seven wing who can really defend and who can really shoot. I was happy to see him start the game, but it was also something that we saw almost immediately, which is something that sort of happens with the short leash with Mike White is he subbed in and he came out of the game, I think after three minutes and well, it was awesome to see him in there originally, you would have liked to see him sort of gel in a little bit more, get settled into the game, because as is the case with any college basketball game, even outside of, you know, a, a big power five matchup like this is these are college kids. They need a little bit of time to get settled in. They're not like the pros in the NBA, the guys who can start or come off the bench and be red hot right away, ready to shoot, ready to go. So I would have liked to see him get uh, some more minutes in this game, potentially over a guy like Brandon McKissick, where, you know, it, he might to the coaching staff play quote unquote harder at the moment than a guy like Kawasi Reeves does, which I don't personally agree with, but that's just sort of the sentiment that we've seen from the staff and get a guy like Kawasi Reeves in there. Who's able to create his own space can hold his own defensively and basically switch anywhere from two to four, potentially two. If they're playing a smaller guy at five, you know, like Darius days, not that he's a tiny guy, but he's not, you know, like your typical seven foot brute center, you know, I, you would have liked to have seen him get some more minutes over a guy like Brandon McKissick in that game. It was frustrating to see him not get those minutes and especially for a young guy who's trying to earn the staff's trust who's trying to cement his place in the rotation in a game like this where he fits in really well you know you just would have liked to have seen him get a little bit more time uh, take a couple more shots from beyond the arc get in a little bit of rhythm since along with not having a secondary ball handler on this team the Gators could use a lot more shooting from outside the arc and guys who are capable and confident and knocking down shots from beyond the arc that's something that Reeves can bring you and also be productive on the defensive end. He's a two-way type of player. He's, you know, the modern wing, the modern 3 and D type of guy that NBA teams are looking for. And it's just a bit frustrating not to see him get used more, especially in a game where you could have used that punch. You know, obviously he started, but coming off the bench later in the game, a guy who could knock down a shot, a guy who's athletic enough to get to the rim, you know, get to the free throw line. That's another way guys are in confidence, you know, knock down some free throws, get some points on the board. So, it's a little frustrating to see him not getting more minutes. I know White is uh, more of a seniority guy and more of a, you know, the guys he sees battling it out, diving on the floor in practice. That's who's getting more minutes. But you want to get this guy in a flow because he can easily be one of your best players and if not one of the most talented players on this roster. So a little frustrating not to see him get some more time in that game. Yeah, I mean, I thought that both he – well, I'll get to my – Second point in a second. Yeah, I mean, I think Reeves 
We've been talking about it on a few podcasts. This was his best game defensively. I think Eric sent me some video of, of him being maybe the only Florida defender that could keep gains in front of him. Um, and I'm not sure why when the only offensive option that LSU had late in the game was gains, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not seeing Kawasi Reeves out there until he certainly shouldn't be tired having only played 91 minutes uh, in, in the non-conference. Um, and you know what we saw with Keontae Johnson the last time Florida was this kind of erratic and, and wobbly. And you wondered if they were even going to get into the NCAA tournament. And you saw a guy, Keontae Johnson, who played 95 minutes in the non-conference slate um, and ends up being a guy that, that posts a double double in the NCAA tournament. And, but for him, they don't make the NCAA tournament. And like, at some point, Mike's going to have to trust that Kwasi Reeves might be that guy because Florida's now 0-3 in the SEC. And I think the big bugaboo with Mike was, well, you have to defend. Well, we've seen the last couple games that Kwasi Reeves, who is a film junkie, a uh, gym rat, you know, we've seen him start to play defense. So now that he's playing defense, let's get him attacking closeouts instead of settling for jump shots sometimes, um, you know, to honor Eric Fawcett at a minimum. Uh, we need him doing that. And then I think, I think, you know, beyond that, yeah, I mean, he's got to play some of these minutes that McKissick getting. And the other guy I would have liked to see last night, um, and I think really would have helped Colin Castleton, in fact, would have been CJ Felder. And I think Jake sent a tweet about this. Yeah. That if I could have retweeted, retweeted 22 times, I would have. Um, like, I just don't understand how with Efton Reed out, with Terry Eason out, and, uh, I mean, they're like eating with O'Neal on a couple of possessions um, because they just need somebody that moves a little bit better laterally uh-huh. to deal with him. And it's like, C.J. Felder is sitting on your bench, Mike. And, um, even, and even I think offensively, that gets down to the yeah. last point. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. That, well, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he had a great offensive. Yeah. I mean, no, so sort of going to the point that you're making as well, just a guy, you know, he's an experienced player as well, coming from the ACC, getting those minutes at Boston College against a guy like Sharif O'Neal, who you mentioned, who they basically had to throw out of there out of, I mean, absolute necessity as being one of the only, you know, big bodies they felt confident being in that position. You know, CJ Felder is a guy who was lauded as a defender in the ACC, came into this game, and especially when the LSU front court is getting smaller and smaller, what does CJ Felder love more than catching the ball in the corner, taking his man in the post, getting down there and either getting fouled or getting an easy strong man bucket at the rack. That is what CJ Felder does. And it would have been an easy way to get some points on the board for Florida to spread the ball out a little bit more and potentially even limit the double team from Castleton who had a great game. But if you give him even more space and more one-on-ones and less chances for the LSU defense to double team him, it's just another option you could have used on both ends of the floor. And it was shocking to see, I think it was six minutes or no, sorry. Appleby got six minutes in the second half and Felder got three minutes in the second half, which is just, it's, it's mind boggling. It's, it's borderline, it's, it's borderline coaching malpractice. We don't know the reason for it, but from the viewers like us watching at home, seeing the numbers, seeing uh, the matchups and, and the uh, lineups that LSU is throwing out, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. There wasn't really a need for it. It wasn't like he had four fouls and he was about to foul out. I mean, he had plenty of minutes available and plenty of opportunities he could have had. And it was just, it was a bit confusing. I'm, I don't know if there's something going on behind the scenes. Obviously we don't know that, but it just, it, it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah Speaking I, of lineups, one thing that, one uh, oh, go ahead, oh, 
No, you better get your point in because I've got I've got lineup things to I, say. I, yeah, I just had a real quick No, I had a quick thing to add on that because I want Eric uh-huh. to to go ahead and bury this point with with lineup data, which I know he's gonna do. But so like I talked to Leonard Hamilton over the summer and he was like, Oh man, you have this like ferocious competitor in CJ Felder, who he thought was just one of the absolute most competitive dudes in the, in the ACC. I mean, if Leonard Hamilton calls you a dog, you're a dog. All right. Oh, he knows. And yeah. <laughs> he played third. He played 13 minutes and 10 seconds. He played nine seconds more than Shaq's kid who has played about as much basketball as his former school, UCLA. <laughs> no, all good points. I completely agree. Eric, what were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut no, you. it's no, I wish I could give lineup data actually. Cause I know everyone, <laughs> that's what people come to this podcast for, but you know, for whatever reason, the play-by-play data has not been uploaded. Um, so unfortunately as like 24 hours from the podcast or, you know, since the game time for the podcast, there's uh there's, it still hasn't been released. So unfortunately it can't, uh, can't share anything lineup wise. I, I did think it was pretty interesting that we got, well, wh- what I was going to say is it's interesting that we got CJ Felder at the five minutes, but you guys noticed that it was actually, you know, it was one on the inside and four on the outside and it was CJ Felder in the corner and it was Anthony Deruji setting screens and rolling. And I thought mm-hmm. that that was pretty interesting. Um, I'll also say that those did not go particularly well. And a couple of those times they tried to jam it into to Druji. He kind of got <laughs> wrapped around and had it poked away. And I, I think that that's what happens a little bit when you're a guy who's not used to playing that role and suddenly you're, mm-hmm. you're playing center. But I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm happy to see that they're finally going to some new lineups. I mean, that's something that of course I've, spend some time saying I, I disagreed with some of their lineup decisions. So I, I've got to say, I'm happy that they went to a front court of Anthony Deruji and CJ Felder. They started Kowasi Reeves. Um, so I think they tried out a bunch of different lineups. I will say that, you know, down, you could even actually say that down the stretch, they tried out different lineups because Tyree Appleby wasn't there, but you know, still it was the kind of familiar faces that, um, we know that Mike White really trusts and and that's, you know, Brandon McKissick who's seemingly more than I'll say consensus, um, at least of the three guys here. And, you know, definitely some section of the fan base. Um, and one thing too, that I'm really looking forward to seeing in the lineup data, but when the Gators did go on their surge in the second half, just like they did against Auburn, Kowasi Reeves was on the floor. Um, so I'm curious to see how much that is, you know, our mind's eye for us that watch the game or, or how, how much the lineup kind of data will, will show that. But, but again, he was on the floor in some key minutes when the Gators made a comeback. And I think that the fact that he's did that against Auburn, that he was on the floor again, um, for a comeback against LSU. And it wasn't because of his shot making, uh, that, that really says something. And again, I think you can tell that he's pretty tentative to, to let it fly, uh, because I do think that he realized he's got a little bit of a shorter leash than some of the other guys. But like, there's some times where you you look at this team with just multiple guys shooting 30 or below percent from three. Uh, there's going to be uh, um, there, there's got to be a time I think where it's like, hey, Kowasi, you passed up this corner three. We need you to take this. Like, it's not a matter. Like, it, it's it's not a matter of you know um, what confidence he feels or what the kind of what the what he feels the rope may be. It's like we've got a bunch of guys around you that we don't want them shooting a contested shot at the end of the shot clock. We'd rather 
give you a contested shot um, from one of the spots you're good from. So um, that's just something I, I kind of noticed. I'm, I'm going to kind of continue to say that I think Kwesi Reeves should get more minutes. And the fact that he's able been able to uh, contribute um, kind of twice in a row in big minutes um, with his defense pretty much, uh, I think that that's kind of speaks to why. Mm-hmm. No, no, and I think that's a good point about Reeves also sort of in his tentativeness of, you know, not wanting to be pulled or feel like he's not making that contribution. I think, you know, this is something that we've seen, which is sort of uh, one of Coach White's strategies is that, I mean, I kind of refer them to them as like line changes. Like, Eric, I know you're Canadian, so obviously, you know, you know about hockey. So, you know, if you're a forward, you're going for like a 45 second to, you know, at absolute max, your gas at 115 and your line changes and you roll out. I think what we've seen too much with during Coach White's tenure is that it's sort of somewhat like line changes where if a player makes two mistakes in a quick sequence, they're coming out and they're basically getting pulled for another player. And we saw a lot of Coach White's questions, or not questions, a lot of his comments about the team, you know, not being mentally tough enough. But And this is more of an abstract thing, but I think one of the things that can contribute to that and guys not feeling as confident and wanting to run their offense is that they feel like if they're making one or two mistakes in a row that they're going to be coming out, a new lineup's going to be going in, somebody else is going to be going in, and it doesn't inspire, it, you know, really inspire confidence in a player, especially a young player where you're telling them to go out, you know, you're telling Kawasi Reeves, you come in out of high school as a great shooter, you know, we know you can handle the ball a little bit and do all this stuff, but then when they make a couple freshman mistakes, you pull them and don't put them in the game for sometimes five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes after that. So, you know, I, I think that could be an issue in terms of confidence and some of these guys feeling like, they're going to get pulled in any moment. And of course, you know, you want it to stay competitive. You want to have your best players out there and you don't want someone out there who's making a ton of mistakes. But I, I think if some guys like Reeves, the younger guys like Reeves are given a little bit more of a chance to show what they can do in longer stretches, I think that can sort of help. But a, a different question I wanted to pose to you guys, and this sort of goes back to the ball handling points I was making before. Outside of Tyree Appleby, who do you feel the most confident with the ball in their hands in the half court? Because I think my answer is probably Flanders Fleming at this point, honestly. I feel more comfortable with the ball in his hands than I do McKissick and Jones in terms of a shot creation standpoint, in terms of the defense actually respecting the primary ball handler and the player who has the ball in their hands and is able to make a move, whether it's via playmaking or scoring. Yeah, for me, it's definitely Fleming, uh, especially looking at some of the shooting numbers from today. Uh, when I was working on my article, uh, he's definitely one of the the best guys at, at making contested shots, which again, is not your goal in the half court. But when it gets to that, he's a guy that I trust with it. And he's also a guy who I just trust can keep his dribble alive when he drives down the lane and then takes contact. And again, that's not the case for a, a couple of other other guys. And I, I think you even saw that again in some key possessions with Myron Jones, who drives the basketball with no intention of trying to finish at the rim um, because he's not comfortable there. Um, and I think you see with McKissick where he's, he's gotten a little bit better since some of the early weeks of the season where he's just, getting a shot blocked over and over again. Um, I guess actually against LSU, he got one pinned and got a pretty, pretty favorable foul call. Um, I think. Uh, but, uh, again, for me, it's like, if we're doing tier talk, it's, you know, it's, it's Appleby on his own level. Um, a tier below that, or maybe two tiers below that would be, uh, would be Flanders Fleming. Um, and then there'd be another teardrop, I would say to, to the Myron Jones and, and McKissick's of the world. And I'm not even sure who I'd put, ahead of those two. I mean, we saw um, Myron Jones get picked clean against LSU. I'm um, just bringing the ball up the floor. Um, some of that was him just looking away and, and kind of losing focus for a second and LSU defender picking up on it. Uh, but part of that's just not really his, his skill set. So um, 
this was kind of a problem the last couple of years when it was like, hey, when Chris Chioza comes off the floor, who's going to handle the ball? Then it was Andrew Nemhar when he came off the floor, who's going to handle the ball? Trey Mann, he comes off the floor, who's going to handle the ball? This this does seem to be a, a little bit of a common theme. And I know some people are going to point to uh, not having a backup point guard for all, a bunch of these years. And to some extent, yes. But uh, to me, it's like modern basketball is about how multiple ball handlers on the floor and it's honestly more to do with the the shooting guard and small forward types um than it is a you know a backup point guard that might play 10 minutes a game but uh for me it's flanders fleming curious what uh, what you think neil yeah i mean i would agree with your your order both of your orders i, I do think this team has more in the way of secondary ball handlers than than they've had in the past um but i think jake's distinction is pretty important like they have these guys that can handle the ball, but I mean, outside of Tyree Appleby and and maybe to some extent Flan Fleming, who I still wish they would run actions for where he could catch and drive downhill. I don't understand why they don't do that very much um, because it just negates all the video. And I don't care what league it was in. Like, you know, every video of his strength was attack the 10, get fouled. And he makes his free throws. So, um, you know, I think, they need to do more of that for him. Uh, Jones can handle the ball it's because it can handle the ball, but there's not really an, any intent or anything that's going to stress defenses uh, in those guys, you know? And so it's a little more like Kayvon Allen-ish to me in, in that respect. Like you weren't ever really expecting Kayvon uh, to stress a defense, although, you know, Kayvon could drive. He just was afraid to, whereas you're not going to get anything out of Myron or McKissick, but maybe a turnover. Um, and then also, you know, I mean, the elephant in the room, and we don't talk about it much, and I certainly won't be pinning any columns at Saturday Down South about it, but you've got a roster spot with uh, Keontae Johnson. So, I mean, um, you know, it's an extra potential point guard. It's an extra potential creator. Uh, certainly who was Florida's primary second ball handler the last season, the COVID season that got canceled and stopped was Keontae Johnson who was Florida's main guy last year when it wasn't Trey Mann through the first five games, it was Keontae Johnson. So um, that's a roster spot that's occupied and I think should be occupied. Mm -hmm. uh, don't get me wrong. Don't hit me up with hate in my DMs, people. But they are playing a, a scholarly down. Well, and I, th I think you could point to that scholarship. You could also point to a junior college um, take that uh, – not all of us are super percent above. Um, I still, I still really like the Elijah Kennedy take for sure. I guess someone could argue, um, do you go at someone who could have given you, you know, could have produced for you this year? Someone could make that argument. I still am a Man, fan of, of the Elijah. He's going to be good. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> I love to hear that. And, and he's going to be good. Well, and, and even, I mean, in terms of his ball handling, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be so bold as to suggest that he's ahead of some of the other guys, but it crossed, it crossed my mind to say, because he had some good moments earlier in the season, just again, like um, obviously he doesn't have the experience, um, but just in terms of like his ability to like take it into traffic, put it through his yep. legs, one shift crossover, like he had a couple of moments. I were like, Oh, this guy can, can really handle the ball. He's a, he's a lot more, more than a shooter. But um, I, I think maybe the last thing I wanted to bring up um, for this game, um, I think I'm just going to start with my take and then Jake and then Neil, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong or, or what you have to add or, but you know, we see Florida struggle to miss free throws or they struggle to make free throws. I should say they miss some key free throws. Um, 
it's been a problem um, for a couple games in a row. And uh, of course that was a big discussion point. My take on free throw shooting, like it's always interesting because whenever a team struggles to free throw shoot, the players and the coaches always say, Hey, they, they work on it a lot. Hey, we work on it a lot in practice. My kind of thought is like, it's never really seems to be effort or repetition. Um, to me, free throw shooting is still a lot of mechanics. And I think people treat it too much. Like it's a mental exercise, which to an extent it certainly is. But when guys go up there with poor form and they miss free throws, I'm not thinking, wow, I wonder if they did free throws after running sprints or did they put up 200 free throws after practice? I'm thinking that guy's bad mechanics. And I think it's kind of interesting that free throw shooting is is so different than a lot of other things on the floor where, where no one's like, oh, I wonder if they did put in reps or if they practiced this when tired. But for some reason, people look at free throw shooting like that. So I'm going to go on you know, my, my take regarding the free throw shooting is I think it's a mechanics issue with the number of players. Um, of course the most, I I'll say egregious is, is Myron Jones who just has such a funky release and you're going to get those inconsistent free throws because of it. But, um, that that's kind of my, my reaction to the free throw shooting problems. And I'm curious what uh, your guys' reactions are to it. Yeah, no, I, you know, one of my favorite things about the the free throw shooting stuff is, and you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys see it in, in your mentions as well. I, I love this notion that people, you know, sometimes tweet and think that like Florida goes through a practice, they go through their allotted amount of time and they just, they just decide not to shoot free throws. Like they just, you know, if they go to practice and they go, yeah, you know, we're just not going to shoot free throws today. We don't need to do it. Like they finish an hour's worth of drills. And then, uh, you know, like Penguins or Pastrana says to, to uh, Mike White, they go, Hey Mike, do you, do you think we should practice free throws today? And he just goes, nah, you know, if these guys have put in a hard practice, we don't need to do free throws. Like, trust me 100% they are working on free throw repetition they are doing high intensity high intensity high pressure free throws where you know they're running full on five five on five just absolute back and forth take a quick break someone goes to the free throw line and shoots two. like this misconception that teams who aren't good at free throw shooting just go through practice and go you know what free throw shooting that just that just slows down practice we, we don't need to do that you know you guys can make free throws they're open shots like i just <laughs> I, I i i just absolutely love that misconception that people think that teams who aren't good at free throw shooting just don't even think about it they just go you know we'll do all the other stuff well why would we practice free throws and 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 I, you know what it comes down to it where i completely agree with eric you know when when you talk to uh you know nba scouts or, or people in in that world and you sort of ask them and we saw this with jalen hudson sort of how can you tell a guy is going to be a good shooter or that his shooting percentages might go up in the NBA as opposed to what they did in college? And they say, look at their uh, looking at their mechanics, but also looking at their free throw percentage in terms of the guys with higher free throw percentages, but who have good me- mechanics, but potentially lower three point of field goal percentages. Usually people at the next level are more confident those players are going to become better shooters and able to turn that around. And I think it does come down to mechanics. I mean, you see with Myron Jones where you know, he does hit some of these three-point shots, and whether they're uh, guarded, whether they're unguarded, he has that funky release that is, you know, it's it's repeatable for him because it's the way he shoots. But when you continue to shoot like that and, and you don't practice better form or at least try and change your jump shot a little bit to help you down the line, you know, that's sort of where you run into some problems. And, I mean, you even sort of saw with Jalen Hudson where when he first came into Florida, he shot with a ton of side spin, and it was working from three-point range just because he, he was that good of a shooter. But the free-throw line, 
one, he was really struggling in that aspect. And you've seen throughout the years and even onto his pro career in the G League and overseas that he's worked on his form. It looks a lot more natural. He's taken out the side spin and collectively he's become a better free throw shooter. So I think a ton of that absolutely comes down to mechanics and does not come down to the team just saying, let's just get lunch. Like we don't need to practice free throws. Like we're hungry. We had a good practice. Like it, they're practicing free throws, folks. I, I can assure you that any division one, division two, division three, NAIA program is absolutely putting in high pressure, high intensity free throw practice. They're just not skipping past it in practice. That's not the issue. I think some of it's mental, but a lot of it is uh, mechanical, like Eric suggested, where a couple of the guys on the team have those funky releases. They're hard to repeat, and they're hard to get down in those crunch time situations, which is why you see a lot of not just bad misses, but really bad clanks off the rim and where the shot doesn't even look close coming out of their hands. Yeah, it's like, can you imagine if Florida blew a pick-and-roll coverage in practice and then they said, okay, let's run that a hundred more times and blow it again, you know, a hundred times. Like no one would ever do that yet. Someone goes up with bad free throw form and they think like the, the conversation is always like, oh, they're working on it. They're putting in tons of reps. And it's like, man, quality, like quantity does not make quality in, in this kind of, you know, it's not like practice makes perfect here. It's just like, if you keep doing practicing the same way. So that's just one of those things that, um, Whenever I hear a response to free throw shooting, like going padly when it's like, oh, you know, they're, they're putting in so many reps. It's like, well, if they're putting in a lot of reps, then that's probably not the problem. So that's kind of my take. I know it's tough because like when Myron Jones shoots the ball that way, it's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to make him change his form? Um, I would suggest maybe. I mean, it's certainly tough to do in the, the midseason. Um, mm-hmm. But we know when someone's shooting 30% um, or from three and, and not shooting well and missing some key free throws, it's like, it could be like, what do you have to lose? But I, I do think it's funny. I remember bringing up the story, like in one of our first podcasts, Neil, years ago when we started. But um, I remember listening to a podcast with with Joe Mihalik, the, the coach at Hofstra. And they were the number one free throw shooting team in the country a few years back. And they were like, oh, so what do you do to uh, like, what do you what do you practice? Like, what drills do you do? Are you good at putting guys through sprints and then making them, you know, are you making guys run if they miss free throws? And he he was just like very calmly. He's like, we have not shot a single free throw in practice all year. And we do not talk about it. He's he's just like <laughs> we we don't we don't work on it. We don't talk about it, and like there's no punishments. He's like we have good free throw shooters that have good form, and then they go and and make you know make free throws in games. And it's just so funny because all these guys that were hosting this this coaching podcast were just like floored. They were ready to to hear about him, you know, like cracking the whip and you know, or, oh, these players are shooting 2,000 free throws. And it was just like, no, they shoot with good form. And then like, there's no need for them to, you know, shoot it a hundred times or run sprints if they miss. But yeah, it, that's, I, I'm not saying that's the approach that Florida should stop practicing entirely. I think the, the story from that would be like, well, if you're doing it right, you don't need a thousand reps. But uh, Neil, what do you think about, about free throw shooting? As a high school basketball coach yourself, I'm sure you've been put in some situations with bad free throw shooters for sure. Yeah, I mean, I wish everybody could be Kenny Boynton and shoot like 90% at the line with the worst form in the history of, of the planet, right? Like that would be, you know, you do you, Kenny. Um, but the real the real answer is, you know, you need to shoot it properly like Chioza and, and Kayvon Allen, you know? Like there's a reason it went in all the time for those dudes. I mean, Myron Jones, like – it's more shocking to me that he's a career 77% free throw shooter than what he's doing at the line this year. The way that the ball comes all the way from one hip to the other shoulder. 
before he releases it. Like I have no idea how he was making a little more than three or four a clip um, the way that, that he shoots free throws. And that's just one guy, Brandon McKissick uh, doesn't seem to bend his knees much and pushes the ball um, kind of aims it at the rim. Um, you know, that's not going to work. That's why he's, he was one guy we talked about in the preseason as somebody, I actually think I mentioned being worried a little bit by his ability to knock down uh, free throws. Flan Fleming, mm-hmm. perfect. Uh, There's a reason that they go in. So yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly uh, agree with, with you guys on, on this issue. Obviously photos 11 of 22 at the line yesterday, if they have a good night at the line where they're 17 of 22, they go to overtime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if Flan Fleming doesn't say something uh, after making a three down double digits, they win the game. So, you know, this team's margin for error is so small that these kinds of things, like we could spend 20 minutes on this on any number of podcasts when they lose, because you just can't do like, you can't be down 42 to 28 and make a three pointer at the end of the shot clock and say stuff, you know, right in front of a referee. Like you you can't do that stuff. Um, You know? And so, yeah, I don't think it's because they, they're not practicing uh, free throws at the practice facility. I think the other thing too, about making guys shoot a lot of reps is like, uh, it, it's only that much more frustrating when you miss in games. Like if you put in an hour of shooting free throws because you were like, oh, I've got to get this right. I'm going to go to the gym after practice and stay late and put on the shooting machine and, and shoot for an hour. And then you miss in games. Like that's like that's, that's how I think things really compound. And that's why I think that sometimes you see, I mean, there's a hundred reasons why, you know, missing free throws leads to more missed free throws. But like, man, I, th- I, I hear the stories about some of these guys and the amount of reps they put in. And it's like, no wonder they get frustrated and miss their second after missing their first or going over two after going over two. It's because like if they were kind of told, hey, you put in the work, you put in the reps and you'll shoot better. And then they don't. That's just going to bring more frustration. So uh, I, I mean, to me, that's like something you just have to address in the offseason, like moving forward to next season. Like, I just don't really want to see guys shooting free throws on the first like opening game against whoever and, and shooting with bad mechanics, because that's just not going to be a, uh, um, not going to be a situation um, that I'm going to feel confident in later, later in the season. So uh, you know, I think that's, that's probably my, my last take from, from the LSU game. Um, actually, I do have one more thing just really quick. You can comment on it or move along. I do also think Florida had a pretty good idea of how to attack the, uh, the triple switching pick and rolls from uh, uh like uh, just from a schematic standpoint, I thought that uh, when they started like really early in the game, they started going to have Castleton go and set ball screens. And I was like, Oh no, like this isn't going to work. But instead of using the ball handler to try to get it into Castleton, um, they use like a hit ahead. You call it like you swing it to the wing and then that person enters it to Castleton. So it was like um, the ability to like Castleton to roll and then seal the guy that he knew it was coming to, to triple switch onto him. There was also that angle for them, the wing to throw it into him. I thought that that was a really good kind of schematic change for the Gators. I thought that that showed some definite preparation for what's a really good defense. So um, that's probably the last thing I wanted to discuss. And uh, uh, Jake, you can maybe comment on that or Neil, you can take it from there. You know, I think that was a really good point in terms of trying to make those hit heads and sort of 
have the entry pass coming along from the wing. I think it gives Castleton a lot of space. You know, we like we know he likes to make that turn into the middle of the paint where he can sort of get that baby hook off where one of the things we've seen with Colin Castleton, which has been one of the more impressive things with his post play is that when he has an open line to the basket and he can basically make eye contact with the rim and get a shot off clean, he rarely misses those opportunities and getting him into the side and letting him throw in a little baby hook from the middle definitely helps. But I think one of the other reasons that works so well is that it caused the defense to sort of shrink more and more towards the middle and go closer to the wing, closer to Castleton. And I think what we saw that create, which the shots didn't always necessarily go in, was the defense started to pinch sort of from the other side, from the weak side. And it gave Castleton the opportunity when he got doubled in there as well, where they could fire it all the way to the other side of the court. And that's where you saw some of uh, Brandon McKissick's open three-point looks coming from sort of above the break and sort of some of Flanders Fleming's open three-point opportunities coming along. So I thought it was a good strategy as well, and I thought it was a good way for them to sort of get other guys involved when Castleton was doubled and give him better lanes to make passes out of that situation, which, Eric, you mentioned Castleton did a phenomenal job yesterday, and they definitely game-planned that well when he was doubled to know exactly where he was going to pass it to, where the help was coming in from, and potentially where the post was going to be fired from and where he was going to be doubled from. So I thought they did a really good job at that. It just then comes down to the point, which we've discussed numerous times of knocking down those open shots where you saw McKissick had a lot of those open three-point opportunities from just above the elbow where he just wasn't able to knock them down despite Florida doing all the right things of moving the ball all the way around to the other side of the court, getting it into Castleton, letting the LSU interior completely collapse in the middle and getting someone a good look from uh, beyond the arc. Yeah, I thought Florida was also pretty good. Uh, well, I think they've played – I'm trying to think of how to – so I think the last, last two second halves have been the best they've played defensively since early in the season. Uh, I'd like to see them play that well in the first half defensively in both those games, um, although some of their errors against Auburn were less about defense in the first half of that game and more about that they turned the ball over a bunch to start the game. Um this one, I thought Florida's first half defense was pretty poor. Uh, they did do a nice job um, with their ice actions to to do some things that bothered LSU. I, was th- I thought they took away LSU's pick and pop actions to Darius Dayswell. Of course, the Gainesville native has missed like two shots in his career against Florida. Um, so it doesn't really matter if, if they take away his three-point actions. Because he'll just like cruise into the lane and make a 17-foot fadeaway jump shot anyway. Um, but – uh, yeah, I mean, really, there's stuff to, like, build on, I guess. But when you're 0-3 in the league, um, it's hard to to get too excited about that. I, look, we have gone 50-something minutes on this game. We had a ton of listener questions. We're going to punt those to the next podcast because we have to preview South Carolina. But we are going to talk about one issue that got – it's one of those tweets that you kind of, like – I thought it was going to be sort of a throwaway tweet, and it ended up getting – like 46 quote tweets and stuff. So I wanted to ask Jake while we have him about home court culture. And I was prepared for this topic. So I have some quotes. Um, And this is always fun because I can put Jake on the spot. So this is, and I saw some really interesting responses, like talking about how Florida used to have an elite home court culture and sort of attributing that to just the Donovan era. So I wanted to get, I'll negate that with a quote early and then get into some of the other ones. But here's uh, Scott Drew after the Baylor game two years ago. As good an environment as we've been in, uh, especially in the first half, it's like Fog Allen, except everyone's right on top of you. Um, 
So that was Baylor in the Mike White era. John Calipari, this is from Chris Chios' senior day. That's the most special environment we've been in. You can tell that they worship that point guard. Good quote from Cal. Um, here's Bill Self. As tough an environment as we've played in, as good a team as we've played, obviously that was Florida against Kansas on a midweek game in December when it was rainy out uh, and they had 12,000 or however many they had in the building for Billy Donovan. Granted, that's the Donovan era, but I threw in a couple other quotes. Uh, Jay Billis, the hardest venue to, to win in in the SEC, a true house of horrors. Uh, Dick Vitale, the Rowdy Reptiles are the greatest thing to Southern basketball outside of the Cameron Crazies. I love it there, baby. It's awesome with a capital A. Um, I could, I could actually, I, I read some more. Uh, it was anything but awesome with a capital A last night. It was, um, you know, I, I insulted Sunday school classes, and someone rightly called me out on that uh, and said, "Hey, we get rowdy in Sunday school," and maybe they do. Um, but it was tough last night. Sixty-five. They announced. 10,000. There's no way there were 10,000 in the building. Um, 65% attendance, second home loss uh, in a week, third home loss of the season. Um, it's been a problem under Mike White. Looked like it was getting a little better the last two years. But I think when you talk about your biggest criticism and why Mike White has not been able to compete for an SEC championship except for two seasons, uh, and both those seasons he had Chris Chioza, Um I think you have to start with home court culture. Maybe like we can talk lineup rotations. We can talk to it. If you hold serve at home, you're going to have a lot more of your goals uh, in front of you. And I actually would put scheme offensively ahead of home court culture. Um, but I think that this is like a huge issue and it's clear that it bothers fans too, based on my Twitter mentions thoughts. Yeah, no, it is It is definitely a real issue. I mean, you see those games and they come out from the opening shot of the broadcasters and they go to that zoom-in shot from the side. that The camera is on the side of the Rowdies, which just from a tele television and, and aesthetic perspective, it is not a good look because, as you guys have mentioned, you have the alumni side that the camera is facing. And there's basically an area that if you go up to the concourse level where if you've been to the Odom, you know, you can basically go into this back area where there's food and there's drinks and a lot of the people sort of hang out and congregate in that concourse area. And it makes it look just absolutely empty on TV when you're watching it. But, you know, just when they were showing the entire arena last night against LSU in a game where, you know, sort of same thing as against Alabama, you have a top 15, top 20 team in the country coming in. And regardless of whether that game starts at six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, historically, the place has been packed for that. I, I got to give credit to the Rowdies. I mean, they absolutely always show up on time or always loud and you can hear it on the broadcast. But you know, I, I think some of it is as much as you don't want to say it is that, you know, a lot of fans have grown somewhat apathetic towards the program in recent years from, you know, just in terms of the home court success that we've seen, uh, maybe not going as far in the tournament as people would like to see some of the disappointing losses at home, such as Texas Southern. And uh, one of the funny ones I always go back to is when Florida lost to Loyola Chicago at home and people just wanted to, you know, rip the team apart for losing to it, this mid-major team. And then they end up going to the uh, final four that year, but you know, I think a lot of it honestly has to do with that apathy towards the program in terms of a lot of fans right now, you know, are most, 
the average Florida fan is a lot more football focused. And when things are going well with football, you know, basketball can sort of be that side view of, you know, something to enjoy, but more so when football season's over. But, you know, obviously this season, people were very excited going in in terms of a lot of older transfers coming into the team. They were going to be a more mature team, what seemed like a more physical and more athletic team. And with the losses recently after the hot start to the season, I think a lot of fans fell back on their opinion that maybe this coaching staff can't get it done. Maybe this team just doesn't have what it is. And I mean, Neil, honestly, describing the environment yesterday when you saw it, it was similar to like, you know, when you were like in middle or high school and you went to like the auditorium for like a guest speaker who came in, but it was some speaker from like, you know, from like the bank or somewhere that nobody wanted to listen to. And you had this speaker like trying (laughs) to get the crowd into it, like trying to get them excited. And all the students are just like, man, like when is lunch? Like, when can we leave this place? Like, this is dreary, you know, this is no fun. Like that, that's just what it felt like. It, it, it felt like there, there wasn't a lot of energy in the building, you know, besides the rowdies. And it seemed like the people who were there were there almost because, you know, they were season ticket holders, their games were locals. They sort of felt like they had to be there, but there's not that extra buzz in the arena that we saw early in the white era that we saw throughout the entire Billy Donovan era. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, one of the things you pointed out was offensive scheme. I think a lot of it has to do with at the moment, it's not the most exciting brand of basketball. I mean, some of the things that you really enjoyed under Billy Donovan and early in the Mike White era was you had some pretty good guard play, whether it was between, you know, Chris Chioza, Scotty Wilbekin, going back to Billy Donovan, Kenny Boyne, Irving Walker, sort of, you know, these guys who were able to electrify the crowd and make it an exciting atmosphere. Now, listen, if it was like Virginia the past couple of years where the games were, you know, 60 to 52, but Florida was winning all of these games, I think you'd have people in the building regardless. But when year after year you look back at some of Florida's most disappointing losses and you know they're the losses at home to Georgia and those types of games that people remember going to remember how dreary the experiences it is and don't want to go back to I I think a lot of it has to do with people saying give me a reason to want to come back you know I, I want to root for Florida basketball so badly you know I want the program to be back on track but I think it's gotten past the point with Florida where they can just sort of expect people to be in the building which is where it always should be And it's sort of come back to the point where fans are saying, make us want to come back, give us a reason to be there. And I think that's where you get to sort of a problem with whether it's the coaching staff, whether it is the roster makeup, whether it is the style of play is that you don't just have people walking in the building anymore because Florida is playing not just a game, but an SEC game against, you know, whether it's Vanderbilt, South Carolina, LSU, Auburn, Alabama, Kentucky, any team back in the day, Florida's playing an SEC conference game. People showed up because they know where they were going to go in. They were going to see a good home environment. You know, one of the uh, podcasts I listen to, national podcasts, is the uh, CBS CBS Sports Iron College Basketball Podcast. And they always make the joke that you can't walk into the O-Dome. But then they walk it back and they say, yeah, you kind of can walk into the O-Dome nowadays. You know, it's not that difficult. And I think because you've seen so many of those tough home losses, because you've seen the program not succeed to the level that people would like it to be at now in the seventh year under this coaching administration, you've gotten to the point where people don't just come out because the team's playing. They need a reason to come out. And I think that's where you kind of get into a dangerous spot where you don't, you have fans past the point of being angry about the program and showing up because they want to voice their opinion. You have them saying, I'm just going to watch on TV because I'm expecting them to lose anyways. And I'm sure there's not going to be that many people there. So kind of a loaded answer, but I think there's a a variety of factors and mostly just that the team isn't drawing them in just because they're playing anymore. 
you know, they need to give fans a reason to come back. And that is not a great state to be in when in the past, no matter who they were playing, the place was packed and it was loud no matter what. Yeah. Neil, I felt for you after tweeting that out, that there was definitely some responses that thought that you were calling out the fans for not supporting them. And, um, you know, I knew that that was not the case and, you know, want to reiterate <laughs> that to, to anyone listening right now that saying that the home crowd was, was poor and, or that wasn't the phrasing, but saying it wasn't great. Like that's, um, that's not on the fans. And, and, and again, that's something that's so kind of, I guess, thinking about Gainesville and, and how many people are driving from other cities that uh, for a weekday game at, you know, seven Eastern, that's uh, uh, that can be tough. And um, that can mean a lot of arrangements that can mean hotel rooms for some people. So I can totally understand why it's, you've got to give them something, a, a product that they can feel really proud of. And, something that's really awesome about college sports uh, specifically college basketball really is that like the fans entertainment dollar can really speak to what they support. And it's like one thing if like 500 people don't want to show up to a heat game um, that will, won't move the needle. But you know, if there's huge empty sections at the Odom for a Florida game, I think that tells you a lot. And you've seen with some of the really kind of uh, high profile coaching changes in college basketball over the last decade um like the one i'm really thinking about and the arrangement is was very different but with with tubby smith getting fired at memphis which was kind of an ugly situation at the time and you know their athletic administration was like pretty much saying like um you, you know we couldn't afford not to move on because they were losing so much ticket sales and they had a huge you know they had a huge building and a contract that they needed to fill, fulfill by selling enough tickets and that's obviously different but like I do think that the the current administration has like full support behind white. They, they really do. Um, that's something that's just been echoed every time that um, it kind of comes up that, that they want white to be around and they support white. But you know, if there's a bunch of games in a row where there's 4,500 people, maybe, maybe that changes. I'm not saying it will, but those are the things that might make someone change their mind. So um, that's still a, a far cry from what we saw against LSU that would be an exaggeration to suggest that that's next, but like it, it's something to monitor because in, in a vacuum, um, I feel like a lot of the conversations about, you know, white and the, the support of white by the administration have just been down to like, you know, the product on the court and um, you know, where they feel like kind of the consistency they, they feel that white is winning at, but uh, man, if it starts to be, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of dollars of, of ticket sales being lost every single game. Um, maybe that changes. And again, I, I think that that is one of the great things, honestly, about, about the connection that college or, you know, basketball fans have to their team is that um, when people don't show up, it, it registers in a way you don't see at the professional level. And it's, it's just one of the, one of the things that uh, that kind of makes college sports interesting and, and cool. And right now I think with LSU, you've seen a whole bunch of consumers of Florida, um, athletics, particularly basketball, kind of making their opinion heard, um, at least to some small extent. Yeah, and and I mean, it comes down to it's it's like it, it's not like you need in semi pro, you know, you, you don't you don't need Mike White to wrestle a bear at halftime to get people in the building. Like Florida basketball can be at a point where it is an exciting brand, and it's it's sort of like you hear the, the coaching staff preach every off season that we're going to play fast. We're going to play exciting. We're going to do all these things. And if you're able to execute those things, you're able to execute your game plan coming in. You're able to, you know, win these home games and give people a reason to go. People will come back so easily. We have seen it as recently as before the COVID year, two years ago, that people were in the building ready to go. And, you know, 
even the the year that the tournament was that ended up being canceled by COVID, you know, that was a, a Florida team that we might have even seen lose in the first round. You still saw good crowds there. You still saw people into it. So it's not that far away from getting to a point where it can be a rowdy environment again. It can be a place that if people want to be. You just have to give them a reason now. You're no longer getting them just in the building because Florida is playing. You have to give them a reason, and that is a frustrating point to be at, but it's the point that you're at, and and you really have to get back on track if you don't want to see it. I mean, I don't think it's going to get even worse than it is now, but it's a problem you sort of need to fix quickly from a ticket revenue perspective, from a home court environment perspective. I mean, it's just something that you absolutely need. It is, like you mentioned, Eric, in college basketball, it is the ultimate advantage. It's not like, you know, in an NBA arena where there's 20,000 seats, and if 2,000 people aren't there, you really can't tell the difference. College basketball is all about the noise that you keep in the place. And the Odom can get loud when people are there. When you hear the students banging on the bleachers behind the broadcast crew and you hear them mention it every single game of, man, the students are really getting loud behind us. It's really you know hard to hear and hear. That's that's all you need to get to. And maybe you can get the team to a place mentally, which we heard about. You know, The team mentally has had all these issues. If they hear the fans behind them, if they hear it getting loud, maybe it helps their encore production as well. But I... I do agree. It definitely is a problem right now. It's not a good look. And, you know, I'm not going to go out and say, you know, the team isn't going to be able to recruit because it doesn't look good. But, you know, when a kid who is maybe not from Florida and who doesn't go to games, let's say it's a kid from, you know, Georgia or the New York area, like Billy Donovan used to recruit or Texas or wherever, if they turn on a game and, you know, they see it's a seven o'clock game against a top 15 LSU team. And there's like nobody in the building that, that doesn't really want to make you come and take your official visit and come see what the environment is like when you turn on your TV and go, oh man, this is a marquee matchup and the building's like 65% full. I mean, it's it's brutal on a lot of different levels. It's not just a matter of home court advantage. It's a matter of recruiting, ticket revenue. I mean, it, it goes deeper than just, it doesn't look good and we wish it was louder in the arena. Yeah, that's why I use the word culture because it's it's everything. It's really has to do with the health of the basketball program at some point. Um you know, and I think that's the one thing that they I would hope that the athletic director and the powers that be look at is, you know, you, at the end of the day, you're custodians of a program that has a tremendous basketball tradition now that has been to several final fours that has been to almost double digit elite eights uh, over 12 sweet 16s. That's one uh, the third most SEC championships of any of the SEC programs. I mean, so at some point when you see a place like Auburn rocking the week prior for Florida uh, and you see a place like Alabama rocking for the iron bowl on a midweek night, the night after they lost the national title game. And then, you know, you look at Florida on a Wednesday night with a top 15 opponent in the building. And it's an opponent that really shouldn't be hard to generate some, some interest and buzz about because it's a team that's been under NCAA investigation for 27 years with, you know, a coach that represents everything that's wrong with the sport. Uh, I mean, you should, it shouldn't be difficult. Um, and I think we're seeing some of these problems that, that are kind of endemic to Florida basketball. Now we are uh, going to briefly preview Florida's trip to South Carolina, which is Saturday. Frank Martin teams have been a problem for Mike White. The thing that stands out to me with the Gamecocks is that this is the best interior defense that they've played in several years. Like they are tenacious at preventing the two-point bucket. Um, as always, they foul a ton, so they're going to send Florida to the free-throw line, which uh, we've talked about. Um, what an enjoyable thing that's been for the Gators. 
and so we'll see. We'll see what happens up there. What stands out to you guys about the Gamecocks? I didn't think about the uh, the whole free throw shooting and the amount of, of fouling that that South Carolina does, but uh, yeah, I, I think looking at, at some of their numbers and 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 watching them play, it's uh, it's definitely the the stereotype I would say of Frank Martin basketball. That's like defense, toughness first, and um, poor offense. And like I, I say this like every year on the podcast when the Gators go to play South Carolina, and I will say it again, I, I really don't think that Frank Martin is a bad offensive coach. He just has bad offensive players, and, and we kind of see that again kind of looking at this uh uh this team um one thing i thought was hilarious um that i'll just reiterate again i remember eric stevenson who is currently their leading scorer um when he came to uh so he transfers to uh south carolina he started his career at wichita state uh then he was at washington and now he's of course at at south carolina and uh he transferred to south carolina he got on campus he had a couple of practices and frank martin <laughs> said and again i'm not sure maybe this was some motivation tactic or something, but he said that Eric Stevenson was one of the best shooters he had ever coached. So in his freshman season, he shot 28% from three as a sophomore, he shot 30% from three. And then as a junior, he shot 30% from three. What is he shooting this year as a senior? 30% from three. So Eric Stevenson is a player who he's got a nice mid range game, a nice pull up. Um, I, I tweeted this out, but like they run the same primate or like, primary break like early offense thing every time and it's like <laughs> eric stevenson coming off a pin down screen getting near the free throw line area and, and he's really good at pulling up and making those shots but that's kind of their offense is a guy in eric stevenson and not super athletic six foot four guy who uh doesn't shoot well from three and frank martin has to be really creative how to get him into spaces to score and that's kind of the situation with with south carolina some guys that you know they they run pretty good offense but it's like for guys to go get shots in the mid-range so um for me i i think that the key to the gators is 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 all about how they're able to to solve that defense because uh you probably know that south carolina is not gonna put up a ton of points on the board i think they'll they'll score a bit but uh it's gonna be can you penetrate that defense Sorry, I was on mute there. But yeah, I mean, and, and one of the things about the South Carolina team that we've seen consistently is that they love to muck it up. You know, they want to keep the score low. They want to keep it tight. And they're always going to play great defense. You know, you look at their uh, turnover percentage against an SEC play and they're forcing basically the second most turnovers of any team in the SEC. What is something that Florida has really struggled with this season is obviously turning the ball over. So, you know, you're, you're not really going to be able to have too many of those uh let, let me rephrase this. Something that we've seen from Florida guards this season, specifically um, Myron Jones and Brandon McKissick, sometimes from Tyree Appleby, is you see them drive into the lane, take about four dribbles, stop midway, do a half pivot, like do a 180, and th- try and throw it across the floor. If you try and do that against South Carolina, it'll be like, you know, when you're playing the game like jackpot or 500 with your friends growing up, and you throw the ball in the air, and whoever comes down with it gets the score, like – South Carolina is going to get to 500. Like they're going to get that ball. They're going to go the other way. And that's going to be something that's difficult for Florida to deal with. And you know what, obviously when you look at their backcourt, Florida's backcourt has had some issues defending when you look at McKissick and Jones and some of sort of the other pieces that they have there. So obviously Eric Stevenson could be a problem. And, you know, just one of my favorite players in the sec that I feel like is able to 
not go off for like 30, 30 or 35 at any given point, but Jermaine Cuisinart is a guy that I've really always enjoyed watching for the Gamecocks. And I think based on his skill set and what he's able to do, I think he's a guy that can give McKissick problems. He's a guy that can give Jones problems. He's able to hit the three-pointer from beyond the arc, and he's skilled enough to go and get his own buckets inside and create his own shots. So you look at those matchups in the backcourt and it kind of scares you, but I think what Florida can fall on is, you know, they can continue to work it inside the Castleton. They can try and pound it inside. Obviously, South Carolina is going to be collapsing and doing a lot of the firing the post that we saw with LSU and doubling him in that position. But I think Florida, in terms of a potential just absolute size advantage up front, I think they can potentially get inside. I know they have Josh Gray, obviously, who's their one seven footer, but you look at the other guys, they're sort of playing down there. I think Colin Castleton can once again have success, but it's going to come down to whether the guards are able to guard, you know, Cuisinart and Stevenson. And if they're not able to, I think Florida could get in kind of a rough spot on the road where we've seen Florida struggle a lot at South Carolina. Well, and when Cuisinart was out for one game uh, within one of the like crazier SEC finishes of the year, uh, he was out in Coastal Carolina, beat uh, beat the Gamecocks by 24. So uh, if that tells you anything about how how important he is to the team. So uh, I, I've got to say, like, he's someone I'm looking out for. I mean, definitely uh, long-serving Keyshawn Bryant. He's someone who's been a pretty important defender for them yep. as well. I think he might lead the team in blocks. That that might not be true, but, like, I, in the couple of games I've, I've watched, uh, him rotating over, it was like they have these, like, big centers that aren't super mobile, but, like, drivers just, like, run into them and like it slows down their momentum and then he's there to rotate over and swat it away. So uh, I think kind of uh, going back to what you said too, in terms of Colin Castleton, it's like, you know what, at this point, it's like, I, I it doesn't really what matter what the matchup is. The Gators have mm-hmm. to go down to Castleton. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the, I mentioned that I, thought that he was only able to, you know, in, in some of the games last year, especially, I thought that Castleton was able to really dominate smaller opponents, wasn't quite as dominant against similar size players. Um, we saw him do, you know, incredible things against Auburn and against, against LSU that doesn't have really good guards. Florida's guards weren't able to win that matchup. It was still all about Castleton. Moving forward, it's like whatever the matchup is, whatever size the other teams have in the front court, it's uh, it's getting it into Castleton. So it's like you know, for good, better, or worse. So I, I'm I'm happy to hear that you uh, you think they could have some success that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and I mean, you know, I, it's not like the old school game of basketball where you can obviously completely rely on just throwing it into the post, into the post, into the post. You're obviously going to have to get some of that offense from you know ancillary guys like your Flanders Flemings potentially like. This is a game where Kawasi Reeves can go in and he can sort of guard a guy like a Keyshawn Bryant, who it can be a good matchup there for a Kawasi Reeves. But Castleton's going to have his, his success against this South Carolina team. But I think this is a good opportunity where, you know, we haven't been as impressed with what McKissick and Myron Jones have been able to do offensively as primary ball handlers, but potentially as a secondary ball handler, I think teams are able to guard Florida more effectively because they know a lot of those Jones and McKissick drives are going to end with them not at the basket but making sort of a jump stop and looking for the pass elsewhere. I think if Jones and McKissick, while obviously Jones is a better player when he's playing outside the arc and sort of you're running actions off the ball for him to catch and shoot. I think if you show that McKissick and Jones are a little more committed at actually getting into the paint, getting to the free throw line and making those sort of plays, I think that's a way that can maybe sort of jumpstart what they're able to do, spread the floor a little bit more. And, you know, if you're showing them that you're committed to driving and they're willing to help on those types of drives, it just takes pressure off of guys like CJ Felder and Colin Castleton's where you can give the little dump offs and just the easy dunks for them from places like the dunker spot and just generally in the paint. So 
I think one of the ways that Florida can get their backcourt going is sort of showing that they're more willing to attack the basket, not just float around, make a couple of dribbles and take a three point shot with 15 seconds left in the shot clock that they can easily take. If there was one, two, three or four seconds left shorter, show them that you're willing to do more than what you've put on tape so far. I think that's one of the ways that Florida can sort of expand their offense a little bit more when the ball's not exclusively in Tyree Appleby's hands. So Jake, what, uh, what starting lineup do you want to see Saturday? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if I was the coach and obviously I don't think this is something that white's going to go with, but I would go with, all right, what's a funky lineup I could throw out. <laughs> I would go with Tyree Appleby, uh, Myron Jones, Flanders Fleming, CJ Felder, and Colin Castleton. I would actually like to see Anthony DeRugge's energy off the bench, sort of him coming in as a secondary unit player, potentially going against South Carolina's second unit and seeing what he can do there. Because we've seen DeRugge last game, he was getting some good looks off the dribble when he was making effective drives to the basket. You know, he, he missed one or two right at the rim, but I don't know what it is. I just I just have this weird hunch that I think, you know, you sort of pair him and potentially Reeves coming off the bench in that second unit. You sort of have two guys who are able to attack from the wings that can knock down shots as Darugi's become a better three-point shooter over the years. I think that could be a fun lineup to go with. I don't think there's any chance Mike White goes with it. I think we're going to see Brandon McKissick planted right at the two spot there. But, you know, you can always dream. You can always hope. What about what about you, Neil? What do you uh, what would you like to see starting lineup wise? Because we've seen that the Gators are definitely uh, in that mode where they're gonna you know keep trying things, uh, trying new things out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's gonna be back to square one um, with the the standard. Let's start all our seniors starting lineup. I'm fine with that in this game. I, I look, you're on the road, you're zero and three in the league. If they're not desperate, there's a real problem. Um, from a emotional and tangible standpoint, um, South Carolina has a bunch of big bodies that they can kind of throw at Castleton. None of them are particularly good players. Uh, you know, Wildens Levick is very average. Josh Gray kind of got processed out of LSU. Uh, AJ Wilson is a really good shot blocker, but he's been hurt, hasn't played a ton um, for them. And I, you know, he's still undersized. Like I'm not certain what a great matchup he is on on Colin Castleton. So I think you gotta, you gotta, you know, feed the post to that front. I have no issue. I like the idea of Daruji off the bench too. I also think like Daruji's never a guy you worry about from like an effort standpoint. Um, his head's always going to be in the game. Um, so sometimes moving him to a bench role, like won't disrupt chemistry. And I don't worry about that that much. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me actually, cause you guys had spent a lot of time talking about how they'll attack South Carolina defensively. And I just think it's Florida needs to produce turnovers. Like I like Cuisinart too. I think we all like him. I feel like he's like sec Brandon McKissick. Their games are very similar. Uh, and I, I guess that's kind of a mean dig at McKissick, but like Cuisinart is like Brandon McKissick, but like I've been in the sec for a few years. Um, and he's certainly a much more effective driver, uh, but South Carolina will turn the ball over. They had 23 of them against Tennessee um, I assure you it wasn't anything crafty that Rick Barnes was doing in his man-to-man -man defense. Um, so I, you know, I like the idea of Florida gambling a little bit, like they were able to do against Auburn. I think Florida needs transition buckets. South Carolina is one of the worst transition defenses in the country. If you can get them, uh, backpedaling, you can get layups and scores. Uh, you're not going to score as effectively against them in the half court. They're ranked 12th in Kimpom in preventing two point shots. 
Last year, they were 256 in that category. So Frank Martin has, to his credit, fixed that. Um, and I would say really, really well. This is probably the best defensive team they've had since the final four year, if you actually go back and look at the Kimpom numbers. So for Florida to win, I think they've got to get easy buckets. And the reason South Carolina is 10-5 is that they're 340-something in uh, turnover margin. That's not what you want to be. Um, and those are the types of teams that Florida has feasted off of uh, this year because the one thing the Gators have done really consistently is get turnovers. Going to have to do that Saturday or it's going to be 0-4, boys. And you're, you're going to have to hit those free throws and those turnover. Uh, obviously, you know when, when you're getting into transition, a good chance you're getting fouled and getting to the yes. line. Which, which, of course, we know Florida will need to fix by either taking the Hofstra approach of shooting no free throws or, you know, taking 600, which I'm sure the people of Twitter would love to see Florida just taking 600. The Hofstra <laughs> approach. But, you know, you mentioned the turnover percentage. And just real quick before we throw it over to Eric, just looking at their Ken Palm page. I mean, in SEC play, South Carolina is turning over on 30% of their possessions. That is like. That is like some like some bad high school basketball stuff. Like you you do not see teams turning it over on thirty percent of their possessions. So good chance for Florida to jumpstart the offense. You know maybe you get some of the guys who are struggling uh, or not feeling confident in themselves. Not struggling, sort of like a Kawasi Reeves who feels like he needs to build up his offensive confidence. You know you get in transition with him. You get him a couple dunks. You get him a good transition three opportunity. It's just another way to get these guys involved in the game and get more confident in their own offense. Well, the, the thing with South Carolina and kind of why they turn the ball over so much is, again, a, a little bit of, I'll say, a misconception about Frank Martin basketball, where I think people think like physical grinded out basketball. So they assume slow. But like every year, South Carolina is one of the fastest high major teams in the country. And that's the case again this year. They play really fast. They try to push it in transition. I think that's because they well, I think it's like why they're always fast. And especially this year is because they're self-aware enough to know we are not a great half court offensive team. We've got to try to push it. So of course, what comes with that is, is going to be some turnovers and um, going to their transition defense as well. And the fact that they're not great in half court offense. Um, I think that they know they're going to miss a lot of shots. So they go really aggressively at the offensive glass and they, they'll often send three guys at the offensive glass. So maybe a cause for concern. So like they've been bad in transition defense because they send so many guys to the glass, but the Gators are not a very good transition offensive team. So are they going to be able to punish that? I maybe, but I would say they're not really set up to do that. So if you've got South Carolina, just like going as hard as possible on the offensive glass, that's something that certainly concerns me because of the Gators kind of inefficiencies um, defensively rebounding the basketball. And then one last thing for a little bit of a cause for concern slash something that'll be um, kind of nice aesthetically for us to watch and dream about is like South Carolina is a pretty true, pure um, drop pick and rolls type team. They like to stay home with shooters, chase over the top, have these big bodied centers drop down and take away the paint. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a, pick and roll strategy that's um uh one that we've kind of been advocating for for a while so it'll be interesting to to see like the gators haven't really played a true drop team yet this season so it's going to be interesting just for one to see one and dream about what could be with florida's personnel but the other thing about those drop pick and roll teams is like they're trying to challenge opponents um, ball handlers to to beat them particularly in the mid-range um they've had some success with that in in the past against the gators going back to even like young andrew nemhard who they said hey you're an incredible passer so we're staying home on anyone you could pass it to and we're gonna make you beat us um so i kind of look at that and say like hey is it gonna be like when brandon mckissick or or myron jones running pick and roll 
Like they're going to be put in situations where they're getting invited to take mid-range shots. And can the Gators win that way? I mean, maybe we'll, we'll see. So between the offensive rebounding, between South Carolina's dropping of pick and rolls, it's, it's a couple of things that I would say I'm, you know, a bit, little bit concerned about for the matchup. Well, there you go. Um, I think that is pretty comprehensive, Jake. We're appreciative. Appreciative. Can't even speak anymore. <laughs> appreciative of you uh, spending <laughs> spending ninety minutes with us tonight, man. It was uh, great course. to have you on. We'll have to do it again. Have to do it again soon. It felt like a collective vent session, so that was that was probably productive, and hopefully, it, it was will good. Be for it was our like, listeners it was like too, free I'm therapy, sure. you know. <laughs> But no, thank you. Thank you we guys all need very it. much Let's, for having uh... me. Yes. No, 100%. Thank you guys very much for having me on. I mean, I am a consistent Florida basketball hour listener. I listen to every episode. As Eric knows, I, I basically live DM him as, as I'm listening to the thank episode with stuff, with, with stuff that I'm enjoying. So thank you guys for having me on. And I would love to come again, uh, come on again soon. And it's uh, it was a great episode. We got to talk Florida basketball. What's better? Jake, why don't you uh, let everyone know uh, where they can kind of follow what you do and uh, we can uh, close out the show from there. Yeah, no, for sure. So you can follow me at Jake Winderman on Twitter. You can see all of my Gators takes. You can see me getting way too angry about my soccer team, Leeds United. You can basically see me tweeting about all, all kinds of South Florida sports and all kinds of random random stuff out there. And then uh, also make sure, please tune in at CBS Sports HQ. You can go to it at cbssports.com slash live. That's where I work. It is basically Sports Center all day long. We have you covered with all the sports news throughout the day, we are up within seconds of breaking news happening. And you can get all kinds of great coverage, whether it is uh, college sports, whether it's the NBA, NHL, MLB, whatever you are into. We have some of the best guests out there. All of our writers at CBSports.com come on and break down their articles, break down what's going on. And uh, you can basically get everything you need if you're a sports fan over at CBS Sports HQ. So, you know, if, if you enjoyed this podcast and you enjoyed uh, my spiel and my bad jokes, uh, please head on over to CBS Sports HQ and uh, throw us an impression as they like to say. <laughs> yeah. HQ is the best I find, especially for like when you're, you have like 12 minutes to like eat dinner or something and you don't want to show on, you want to throw on like a, a, a 20 minute show or like a longer show. So you're like, Oh, what am I going to watch for like 12 minutes? That's definitely the, the void that that fills for me. So thank you. And uh, to your team for of the course. great work, <laughs> but thanks no so problem. much. And no hopefully problem, we guys. can, uh, hopefully we can talk about uh, a, a win and uh, building off something after Saturday. So uh Go Gators and keep attacking closeouts.